call it. Hello, my fellow fallible humans. My name is Tanya McIntyre. Thanks so much for being here with us today on the Red Roof Recovery Show. I'm joined by my husband, my best friend, and my business partner, Sir Lancelot, I call him, Lance Lickfold. Uh, part of the reason I kept my maiden name. <laughs> Sorry, sweetheart. Um, back in 2020, uh, Lance and I created Red Roof Recovery. It's a revolutionary approach to addiction recovery. And of course, the pandemic, uh, the COVID-19 pandemic slowed things down for us. But that also gave us some time to streamline this idea that a one-week immersive residential program could be more effective for addiction recovery than the current models of recovery that require a minimum of a 30-day stay in a rehab facility because I spent 30 days in a rehab facility. Now, mind you, it was back in 2009. I attended 12-step meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous and Narcotics Anonymous for the next eight or so years. And I was relapsing every year or so. And I was also going to a lot of funerals for my peers who were not returning from their relapses. And I knew instinctively that it was just gonna be a matter of time before I didn't return from one of my relapses. And then I went on a search for an alternative program of recovery and the Pickens were slim in 2018 when I did this search. There were a few available, but the one that resonated with me was something called SMART. SMART is an acronym for self-management and recovery training. It's an evidence-based program. It's based on cognitive behavioral therapies. And I've been a facilitator with SMART since 2018. And I'm happy to say I've remained abstinent since that time. So it's definitely something that's working for me and something that I'm very passionate about sharing. So passionate, in fact, that Red Roof Recovery was founded on what has worked for me. And that's a combination of cognitive therapies, mindfulness practices, and the hundreds of other tools of recovery that are available to choose from. Because what I've learned in my years of recovery work is that the key to recovery is to find something that works for you and then grab on with both hands and do more of it. Uh, if you've listened to me for any length of time, you know I'm a big fan of Dr. David Burns of feelinggood.com. He's an American psychiatrist and considered by some to be a pioneer in the development of cognitive therapies. I'm, I think uh, the grandfather of CBT, cognitive behavior therapy, Albert Ellis was uh, one of Dr. David Burns's teachers in the United States. And what Dr. Burns has done since all of his training as he's taken CBT to another level with something called team therapy, T-E-A-M therapy. And that is also part of the Red Roof Recovery Program. What I love about science is that it's always evolving, which is why science-based solutions make sense to me when it comes to solving this very complex condition of addiction. I recently had a chat with the founding president of SMART. His name is Dr. Joe Gerstein. And he said the three crucial components of recovery from addiction. Number one, motivation. Number two, motivation. And number three, motivation. So we're talking today on the Red Roof Recovery Show exactly what is motivation. So motivation is gonna be different for everyone. Everything is subjective, we're all different. Our addictions will be different and how we recover will be, will, will be different. Uh, for me, 
my motivation comes from having a persistent willingness to exert consistent efforts to help myself. What do you think, Lancelot? So what you, what brought you to that, that point that, you know, where you were motivated? Well, I think for me, what, um, what started out for me, as you know, because you lived with me uh, for more than 30 years now through my addictions and lapses and relapses. And in 2009, when I checked myself into that 30-day rehab in Seville, just outside of Seville, Spain, uh, thankfully, uh, the director of that program was very open-minded, uh, very spiritual, even though the program was a 12-step model of recovery, he had an open mind to the hundreds of tools that are available in recovery and life, to manage life and recovery. And he gave me a book by someone called Louise Hay, who I hadn't heard, heard about uh, until that time, but I had since learned um, that Louise Hay was one of the self-help gurus from the 60s and 70s. She was um, a pioneer in the development of self-help programs and workshops for people who were being discriminated against in the 70s and 80s, specifically uh, people who were labeled homosexual and were afflicted by the AIDS epidemic. And that is the autoimmune disorder that seemed to be affecting uh, the population of homosexuals more than anyone. And there was a huge um, backlash to that, huge discrimination against that group, that segment of the population. And Louise Hay with her friend, I believe it was Marianne Williamson, they started a movement to reach out to these people who were being ostracized by society to invite them into uh, programs and workshops where they could learn how to love themselves and to accept society for what it is, fallible. We're all fall fallible humans. There is absolutely nothing we can do to change the opinions of others, except uh, learn how to uh, exert the power that we do have. There is great power in knowing, Lance, as you've said to me many times, and I quote you, uh, there's great power in knowing that the only thing we can control in life is ourselves. And that, that took me a long time to accept. And it took me a long time to learn how to love myself because in Louise Hayes' book uh, that I was given by this director of the rehab program in 2009, I think it was called You Can Heal Your Life, something like that. But she spoke to me. You know, they say when the student is ready, the teacher appears. And certainly, uh, Louise was the teacher I needed to appear in my life right then. Um, I, I just grabbed on to that book with both hands. Uh, what she was saying resonated with me. She said, you know, the, one of the most challenging things we learn how to do in our lifetime is learn how to love ourselves because it's beaten out of us from the time we're born. We are inundated with messages that we are just never good enough. We're never um, skinny enough. We're never hairless enough. We're never rich enough. We're never smart enough. We're never good enough until we go out and buy something or take something to feel better. And now uh, we, in the year 2022, are now receiving, uh, whether you realize it or not, we're spending a third of our lives in front of a screen, sometimes more. And we are exposed to about 3,000 messages every single day. That's more than our parents saw in their lifetime. And now we are exposed to them every single day. And those messages are pounding us down with messages that say you're not good enough until you go out and buy something or take something to feel better. 
Okay, so let's get back on, <clears throat> back on track with motivation. Did I go down another rabbit hole? Of course you did. Oh my goodness. Uh, oh my. Thank you goodness think, you're here to keep me on track, sweetheart. Thanks. Do you think that you can motivate yourself to reach out for help and keep that motivation going without liking loving yourself ah that's a great question so yes took me a long time to get to the love part uh for me a lot of people on i you know i host several meetings every week for smart online uh, uh we were doing some in person but uh i think the whole world has seems to have migrated online now so lots of online meetings uh with smart they have a great app now uh so you've got smart at your fingertips smart recovery look for that on your phone and you can access daily motivation uh all the meeting links and tools to help in your recovery so motivation is just like everything sweetheart it's going to be different for everyone so if you can't get to the self-love part what about um you know, if you YouTube uh, Louise Hay mirror work, she says, that, what if you can get to a place where you can really, really like yourself? <laughs> or now there's, uh, you know, and again, like we've talked about everything that's old uh, is kind of dismissed as being old school. So Louise Hay, you know, my, people may just roll their eyes and say, oh, well, she was, she's irrelevant now because that was long ago. But again, it's what resonates with you. So I'm learning all the time in recovery circles from people who attend that things like uh, the high five movement. So if you want to pass by a mirror and give yourself a high five or a thumbs up, you know, you got this, you're doing well, whatever works for you, whatever's going to get to a place where you feel worthy of making that persistent, having that persistent willingness to exert consistent efforts to help yourself, whatever it takes to get you there. Whether it's going to be looking in the mirror, so what you're saying is five. that you definitely have to get to the point where you think you're worth it. Well, I'm not sure. What do you think? What motivates you? Everybody's different. Motivates me. Well, as you know, I'm a perfectionist. So if I start something, I have to finish it and I have to do it to the best that I can do. And I find it hard to walk away when you say, that's enough and you know the the internal mechanism i have now is the cost benefit analysis that i do inside how long how much longer is it going to take me to get to that little point where it's a little bit more perfect than it was and is that time worth that little bit of that is that little bit of effort worth all that much time for the result and there comes a point where you go but motivate to, again motivate to do what a lot of motivation for me is a word you don't like much which is obligation i find obligation is a if you make a promise to someone i think you should go for it so that's a motivation and as you all know for a long long time now i've no had no problem with liking myself so, you know, that motivation for me, if motivation comes from liking yourself, then I have no problem with that. But in your experience, if someone 
doesn't think they're worth it, i.e. they don't like themselves, a position that you were in for many years. Do you think that if you're in that position that you do not think you're worth it, you don't like yourself, you don't love yourself, do you think you can stay motivated to stop behaviours that are not good for you? Well, there are a lot of variables there, Lance, that we can look at because, you know, if you look at the brain as a chemical organ, it's also uh, an operating system. And we know that when we kind of fire and wire those same circuits, those habits that we develop, those circuits that are firing and wiring in our brain, that builds neural networks, pathways. So cognitive therapies, in my experience, and they don't work for everybody. Right. There might be something happening uh, with that chemical mix that's swirling around in our brain, uh, which operates on about 80 different chemicals. We only talk about the four uh, main ones that seem to be trendy in certain circles is the uh, the serotonin, the oxytocin, the endorphins, which are known as painkillers um, and dopamine, that dopamine reward axis we talk about with uh, addictions and that connection. But cognitive therapies, um, I think, help use that analytical mind to affect that operating system that can serve us in healthier ways. That's been my experience. Um, okay. So things like affirmations, for instance. You know, in my bathroom, the first thing I'm, I'm greeted with every day, all affirmation messages, you know, I love you, you're worth it, you can do it, you got this, you're beautiful. Um you know, people kind of roll their eyes at that sometimes. And say, oh, do those really work? I don't know. Yeah. Let's go back to 2009. Mm -hmm. When in, in the evening when I've gone to bed because I was working at the time and you reached out for help. Mm. I woke up in the morning and didn't even know it. What motivated you? even in that drunken haze, to reach out? What was the point? Did, mm. Was it the fact that, you know, you thought your life was worth it and you thought you were worth it, even a little glimmer? Or was it just desperation? Or what was the motivator I think it was for all you to that. reach out? Yeah, I think, um, you know, Dr. Gabor Maté, the Canadian doctor who worked for 12 years on Vancouver's east side, which is considered to be the most densely populated uh, addiction population in North America. And, you know, he said, we have to stop asking why the addiction and start asking why the pain. And I think, you know, our pain tolerance is going to be different for everyone. My pain tolerance, I was sick and tired of being sick and tired. I just didn't want to drag my ass through my days anymore. I didn't want to feel um, hopeless and defeated anymore. So clearly there was something in my subconscious mind because I didn't remember reaching out to ask for help until the following day when the guy returned my call from my email, he, from receiving my email and introduced himself as, you know, oh, hi, Tanya, it's Anthony from Serenity House. And I said, oh, hi, Anthony, Serenity House. That's interesting because, you know, I, my father uh, struggled with his own addictions while raising uh, me as a single parent. And 
I grew up with the serenity prayer because he was part of 12 step programs for my lifetime as well. And, you know, so the serenity prayer was something that I, I was exposed to on a daily basis, pretty much. And serenity, I thought, Oh, serenity house. That sounds uh, intriguing. And he said, you emailed me last night asking for help. So I didn't remember. So there was something obviously that was motivating me to ask for help. The hardest thing we do is ask for help. Why? Because, you know, we're slowly killing ourselves. We have a death wish. We're suicidal. Well, we don't care if we live or die. Uh, all well, kinds of different did, variables. Obviously, you did care that you, you know, done because you reached out. Right. Some, something triggered me to reach out for help. I, so, and I, I wish I could define it because, you know, I'd like to share it with everybody. But that's, so that's my information. There must have been something a little bit inside you because you just said you were sick and tired of being sick and tired. Yeah. And everybody's what they call rock bottom is going to be different. You know, everybody's bottom is different. Uh, some people, you know, who end up homeless living under a bridge don't consider my level of addiction a real addiction. I was what was called, um, you know, and again, these labels. That's why I love smart so much because it discourages the use of labels. We are not our addictions. Um, we are not our behaviors. We're responsible for our behaviors, but I think addictions go much, much deeper than just a behavioral uh, issue. I think addictions create a dysfunction in our ability to activate these healthy levels of dopamine. I think we start out um, as in a vulnerable state prone to addictions because of our uh, low dopamine levels to begin with. That's my theory. It's shared by a lot of people in addiction recovery circles. I'm puzzled as to why pharmaceutical industries haven't focused on maybe creating a dopamine patch, just like a nicotine patch that helped me uh, kick that addiction of uh, smoking. I was a pack and a half a day smoker for most of my adult life and nicotine patches were certainly helpful in kicking that. So there's all kinds of um, theories, opinions around addictions. Uh, you know, what we do know is that it's a complex condition and it's still the most stigmatized condition on the planet. So once you've been motivated for whatever reason to reach out for help and you go through our program or the 21 day program in Montreal, the 30, 45 or 60 day program in other places, as Dr. Gerstein said, the predictor of success in abstaining is motivation. Mm -hmm. So in your experience, what are the main tools to keep you motivated? Oh, there's hundreds of tools to choose from. You need to find something that resonates for you. So right? what I mean, for you? Even if you're looking at our brain as the chemical organ that it is, uh, and we're talking about a chemical imbalance with people being vulnerable, biologically vulnerable to addictions, we humans have a feel-good pharmacy living inside of us. And we can activate that feel-good pharmacy in a variety of healthier ways. Um, you know, it's just a matter of, again, having the motivation to even do these activities. So the reward chemical of dopamine, which I think is the deficiency that feeds addictions. So we can do things like completing a task. So that feeds that, that reward chemical. We feel good about it. But again, 
talk about feelings, right? Feelings are fleeting. So the difference between feeling better, which is a fleeting feeling, <laughs> and getting better are different. You get better, I think, when you systematically apply and reapply the tools that you've found to work for you to elevate your mood when you need it. I think that for me, that's been key. So we can do self-care activities. That's another conversation that comes up in recovery circles all the time. Um, I, I, oh, self-care, I don't wanna be selfish. Mm -mm. Different, totally different. Self-care is not selfish. It is imperative that we take care of ourselves before we take care of anybody else. We can't until we take care of ourselves. Very difficult concept for people to accept because we've been conditioned by society and culture and religion to serve. You know, we're, we're here on earth to perform and provide. You know, this isn't about what you want, but we have to define what we want and uh, you know, start asking ourselves, how am I feeling about that? What am I doing to get what I want and how do I feel about what I'm doing about that to keep ourselves accountable for continuing to do the actions that are getting us toward the goals what we say we want, what's the outcome we're looking for? What are we doing to get it? So setting small goals, achievable goals, mm -hmm. and realizing these goals in a succession has been shown to release dopamine. Correct. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the actions... But again, when you're dealing with people with, uh, you know, plummeting dopamine levels, sometimes they don't even have the energy to get out of bed, let alone hold down a job. So, you know, how do you motivate somebody to do little tasks? Like the little task, the goal of the day might be just to get out of bed and have a shower. Then you'll get a hit of dopamine. If, right. you set, if you've set that goal. Mm -hmm. Some stuff I've been reading and watching. Um, talks about how what happens to dopamine is if you set a goal to reach some some point, some some goal, be it physical or mental, emotional, when you reach that goal, you get a certain amount of dopamine that is released. What the dopamine gets transferred into is epinephrine, which is adrenaline, mm -hmm. which gives you a little spark of energy. And if at that moment or at that period of time, you set another goal, the mechanism gives you the energy to reach that next goal, mm -hmm. which then will release another hit of dopamine, which gets put into epinephrine, which gives you the energy to, to go. So you're getting your little shot of but these are, should we go, should we put it, not the exaggerated highs that you get from your addictions. Right. So again, it's retraining our brain to function at normal levels of dopamine because we've been spiking them so high through addictions for so long. Excuse me, it's a retraining process, right? So. Um, yeah. to activate, for instance, serotonin, which is known as the mood stabilizer. So, you know, addiction is also called a, a mood disorder because it certainly is because of <laughs> our inability to uh, regulate dopamine in a healthy way. 
So all of these chemicals are working together to create healthy levels that keep us functioning in life. So we can do things uh, like, you know, exercise, of course, any form of exercise, walking, running, jogging, um, even yoga, meditation, uh, swimming, a walk in nature, cycling, all of those activities create healthy chemicals in our brain. Uh, playing with pets, playing with kids, uh, hugs, giving compliments, um, that all generates the oxytocin levels in our brain, the love hormone. And then we've got endorphins, uh, which are commonly referred to as the painkillers in life. So we can activate endorphins with things like uh, laughing, watching a comedy, um, activating our senses with things like essential oils, good food. Uh, again, exercise on all levels is good for us. And um, dark chocolate has been known to activate some happy chemicals. They certainly do in me. So find what works for you, I think is, is key, right? Because we're all different animals and different things are going to work differently for us. So you, do, you, do you think you can, from your experience, uh, train your, your internal system to accept running at what you would call below par levels of dopamine and because as you were saying there's a lot of um, evidence now that people who suffer with addiction and some behavioral problems start off with a base level of lower dopamine than what you would call the average person whatever that is yeah so can you train your mind and is this why you have to abstain from rather than try and moderate because if you're running at a lower dopamine level, any little bit of stimulation, shall we say, from a glass of wine or a little hit of cocaine or whatever, is going to spike that dopamine to a higher level and that feeds you back into the problem place that you're trying to get out of. Mm-hmm. So for me, you know, my physical sobriety was only the first step. Then I had to work on my emotional sobriety, learning how to regulate my emotions without a need for those high dopamine hits. And that takes a systematic approach of applying and reapplying the tools that I have found to work for me. And again, there are hundreds of tools to choose from. What I love about our approach with Red Roof Recovery and the one week approach, you know, people say, what are you talking about one week? How can you do anything in one week? Well, why have we accepted a system of recovery that's not working? You know, we've got these rehab models of recovery that require a 30, 60, 90, sometimes 120 day stays in a dorm like facility with groups that are not conducive to health and recovery at all. But that seems to be what our governments keep throwing money at, and they're ineffective. You know, I know people with the right advocacy, they can go through these programs three, four times a year with no accountability whatsoever. Nobody's stopping to ask, oh, wait now, this is your third time back here this year? Why isn't this working? 
Well, I think because it's old school to think that it takes a long time to recover, we're still based on, I think, a model that was created way back when, probably from World War II, uh, that military personnel who were affected by alcohol and drug addictions, uh, their only recourse was to go into hospital for treatment, and they could only get a maximum of 28 days off. So this model of recovery was created in a hospital setting around this 28th day, this leave of absence for military personnel. And we have just expanded on that over the decades and it's not effective. You know, science is evolving with more effective ways that can be done uh, more efficiently and faster. And I think, you know, what we are recognizing in, in the model that we've created with one week is that it can be done because it's an immersive personalized program and not a great uh, business model for people, right? Because when you can take a boxed program and throw it at a group of people and feed these institutions that don't seem to work, uh, but you know, it's better than trying to come up with solutions that might be more feasible. I'm not even sure what the answers are. I just know that I would like to revolutionize the mindset around recovery so we can start seeing some better results. When people ask me, what's your success rate? The success rate is gonna be whatever you make it. I can give you the tools that work for you. We personalize them over the week of working with each individual, but then they've got to leave here and actually do the work. And that's the key, stay motivated. And it's gonna be different for everybody. Do you think that the success rate of the group settings the large institutions are a lot lower than you would expect because people are mandated to go there. Mm-hmm. Because that's kind of, yeah, that's a whole. If, other. if Dr. Gerstein is right, and motivation is the key to success, if you're told to do something, you're not motivated to do it. That's true. Absolutely. If you're so, mandated to do it, we've got lots of people <clears> coming onto smart meetings and they need verification forms after the meeting because they've either been ordered to a program to attend a program uh, legally or professionally by their employer or by the courts, you're right. Um, Have I ever seen success in that approach? I have not personally ever seen success in that approach. Um, Interventions don't work. If you're not doing it for yourself, chances are it's not gonna work. So basically the government are or institutions are saying you have to do this because they have to be seen to be doing something. I suppose. And what's available, right? Where do you, where do people, where do you send people? <laughs> right. It's like, we've got all of these things cropping up. It's a multi-billion dollar industry now. And mm-hmm. it's, it's an approach that is just not working. It's gotta be, it's gotta be an individualized approach. People need to be willing to spend the time, with one person at a time for an immersive, exhaustive process of, um, you know, lots and lots of empathy, getting to the root of the problem. Like, um, you know, Dr. Gabor Mate says, stop asking why the addiction, start asking why the pain, you got to get to the root of the pain. You know, we've, uh, you can't bury a worm. That worm will work its way up eventually and come into the surface. So the work that we do is just helping to get those worms to the surface sooner than later, 
pivoting about uh, what what approach is going to work best for the individual and then um, intense immersion for that week. And I, I think it works. I think it works primarily because it's a good course, but also because the people that come are motivated to help cure themselves. Mm -hmm. Because, as I've said before, we, we or anyone else cannot cure someone else of an addiction or a behavior. It's not like having, I don't know, a bacterial infection or a fungal infection that you go to the doctor and they give you a medication and the medication cures that ailment. And then an addiction or a behavioral isn't that type of thing. The only person that can make you better for the bad word, but um, is you. Mm -hmm. You're doing the work. You're doing. So if someone... If we opened up Red Roof Recovery as a franchise and we've got a whole bunch of people and the government started mandating that people had to come to this course, do you think that there'd be more or less people walking away with the motivation to, to help themselves rather than the people that come and are already motivated? Well, I think we've experienced in the last couple of years that mandates are not an effective way to approach anything. <laughs> oh, sweetheart. I, I don't know what, the, what are the answers? I don't know. It's going to be different for everybody. You know, I know people who have gone into 30 day uh, rehab programs and they've loved it. So it depends on what kind of, what kind of environment you want. We become the company we keep. Um, for me, going into a group setting, having to share a room with one or two people for 30 days <laughs> and going to group meetings with a boxed program being presented to the whole group uh, with very little opportunity for one-on-one -on -one, uh, synergies, uh, that wouldn't work for me. And it didn't work for me. It was a good foundation, uh, but you know, the, the eight years I spent in 12-step meetings, I was relapsing every year or two which is why I went in search for something that could sustain me in my recovery and possibly offer an alternative to others uh, who had these similar experience with 12 steps that just wasn't, uh, wasn't working for them. So that's, that's my approach. And I'm glad that you uh, jumped on my bad bandwagon with me, sweetheart. Thank you. So after this discussion, what we've come to the realization is that you need to be motivated you need to keep, continue to be motivated, but that motivation is different for everyone. Absolutely, it's different for everyone. And just activating the feel-good chemicals at that pharmacy that we have living inside us is a great way to start. So it's it's uh, you know a pro, it's adapting, adopting I should say the uh, the airplane analogy. You know when we travel in that metal tube and the the air pressure, the cabin pressure changes inside the plane and that oxygen mask falls down from the ceiling in front of us. We are instructed to put the mask on ourselves first. We need to save ourselves before we can even save our children. A hard concept for people to grasp, but for me, that's been key. It's not selfish, it's self-care. Well, that's a, a discussion we've had and we may have again where it comes to people who live with people with 
addiction and behavioral problems is that you know you have to look after yourself yes i know thanks for being here sweetheart as always i am grateful for you standing by me through my recovery for for this uh, 30 plus year marriage wow an endurance test thank you i love you and Thank you for being here with us on the Red Roof Recovery Show. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Uh, some shameless self-promotion now. My two books are available on Amazon.ca. Mindful Wisdom from My Philosopher Dad. And then Daily Wisdom from My Philosopher Dad. I set that one up as a journal uh, where you can read the inspirational messages every day. And then what I would love you to do is contemplate, spend some time in contemplation on that, and then write your thoughts and intentions for the day. My experience has been that the power of words is powerful and the power of the written word is life transformational. It certainly has been for me. I'm also happy and grateful to say that both of my books are being carried by a local bookstore here in Godrich. It's called Fincher's located in the square of Canada's prettiest town here in Ontario. Thank you. So I hope today's episode of the Red Roof Recovery Show has opened up some possibilities for you. If you'd like to be a guest on the show to talk about addictions and recovery, please email me at redroofrecovery at gmail.com. And if you think you or someone you know might qualify for the Red Roof Recovery Revolutionary one-week program, email me at redroofrecovery at gmail.com. My wish for you is to always live fully, laugh often, love always, stay positive. Remember, there is great power in knowing that the only thing we can control in our lives is ourselves. May the force be with you. And remember, you are the force.